I'm thankful to see you here. I'm so happy to be here on the Sabbath day. But you know, as I look around our church here, I'm a little bit sad. I'm a little bit sad as I think of how many empty pews are in the church. Now I know some of our members are sick and uh, we pray for them. But there are, even when all of our normal, regular members are here, still quite a few empty pews. It seems the church attendance is on the decline. And predictably, with this decline in spirituality, is a decline in the morality of our nation. It would seem that our whole nation is becoming morally bankrupt. Look at the increase in mass murders, suicides, shootings, depression. Look at the drug epidemic. Look at the epidemic of human trafficking. Take, for example, the polarized politics of our nation, the normalization of evil, corrupt, immoral, decadent behavior is celebrated among all classes of society. If there was ever a need for spiritual revival, it is now. I don't think anyone of you would argue this point. And with this comes the next obvious statement. We need help. We need some help. I don't think anyone would argue this point. We need some help. Look around our church. Which one of us isn't doing our best to come to church? Doing our best to put in our tithes and our offerings? Doing our best to further God's work? Now, sure, probably some of us, probably all of us could do better. But I'm not here talking about that today. What I'm talking about is we need some help. If nothing happens, it seems that Christianity may become an extinct species. Now, it's true, we may be one of the smallest congregations in this area. But by no means are we the only one facing this challenge. If you were to go this weekend to any church, any church across this area, around London, Laurel County, almost every church will tell you the same thing. Our attendance is declining. Our church is dwindling down. We're in danger of closing our doors. Wouldn't it be great if we could get some help? Maybe, maybe we could just get some grant money to redo our carpet. Maybe help us renovate our basement. It's badly in need of some renovation, by the way. After all, our church is benefiting our community in a lot of ways. Don't you think? I mean, we can... Have and we have had classes for our community and our church fellowship hall. Maybe we could host a political rally. After all, who wouldn't mind plugging a politician if uh, occasionally, as if they're helping us keep our church open? I mean, you know, years ago we had a church school here. I was the other day. I was up poking, poking around in the attic and I found a few of the old old desks from our church school. You know, maybe we could even reopen our church school if. If we had a voucher program, some tax incentives, so that so that parents would wouldn't have to pay so much to send their kids to private school, and so the argument goes, and it leads me to the ti- to the title of today's message. 
I've called today's message, The Help We Don't Need. What help don't we need, you might ask? After all, every little bit helps, right? Well, that's what they say. But I'm here to tell you today that every little bit does not necessarily help in the direction we want to go. And when it comes to God's church, there is a help that we don't need. But before we answer this question, put this question on the back shelf of your mind for just a moment. I want us to open our Bibles and answer some basic questions about God's church. Who is God's church? Why are we here? And what does it mean to worship God in the 21st century? You know, ever since the beginning of time, serving God has been based upon a choice. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had the choice to serve God or not to serve him. We know their choice. They chose to eat from the fruit of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Cain and Abel had a choice of how they were to worship God. Cain brought of the fruits of the ground. Abel brought a sacrifice according to God's instruction. Seth and his descendants chose to follow God, while the descendants of Cain rejected God. And God finally brought a flood. But Noah and his household chose to serve God. And because of that choice, God spared Noah and repopulated the earth from his descendants. Romans says that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, because of his choice to believe. And so it was with all the patriarchs throughout history. Those who followed God did so because of their own personal choice. Each one had the choice to follow or to reject him. The true followers didn't have anyone to help them in their decisions. But wait, you might say, what about the children of Israel? Didn't things change in the time of Moses? When God gave both religious and civil laws to govern the nation of Israel, wouldn't that be a great help in following God? If we had laws of a nation to help us in the right direction. Well, let's take a look at that. Exodus chapter 19. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. This is just before God speaks the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, I'll begin in verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the children, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel came out from Egypt under the, le- under the leadership of Moses, God spoke to Moses there on the mountain. 
And God told Moses, Now I am fulfilling the promise that I made to Abraham, the promise I made to Isaac, the promise I made to Jacob. I'm fulfilling that promise today and making Israel a great nation, a special chosen nation. And God himself was going to be the leader and the ruler of this nation, both the religious leader and, in many ways, the civil leader, the visible leader of this nation. Not just individually now, but corporately, the nation of Israel was to be considered God's people. Now, God didn't disavow his work among the other nations. Notice he says, for all the earth is mine. And he didn't negate the need for personal choice. But the nation of Israel was going to be something special for God. It says, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God went on to give Israel his moral law there in the Ten Commandments. But he didn't stop there. He gave Israel a code book, if you will, of civil and religious laws mingled together. Now remember, they had no king. Moses was not the king. They were under the visible and tangible leadership of God. Amen. God was their leader. Find there in Exodus, turn back a few pages, Exodus 13.21, and look at what that looked like. Exodus 13.21. You know the story. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. So if you picture the children of Israel, Moses is there with his staff standing at the head, but he's not the head. Up above, going before them, is this tremendous pillar of cloud and fire, the visible presence of God. God was the leader and the king. Of Israel. In fact, when Israel later asked for a king there in, in the book of 1 Samuel, God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, They have not rejected you, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Because God was their king. This is what we call a theocracy. The government of the people was directly from God. God was their very literal leader of Israel. Now, sadly, we know that Israel soon forgot God. But let's take a look, let's take a look at the uh, laws that God gave. God gave his Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. He wrote his law on the tables of stone. Then he gives instructions for the tabernacle service. Alongside these instructions regarding the tabernacle service are laws about the yearly feasts and laws that required punishment for various civil offenses from perhaps being unclean or from being banished from the camp or even punishment of death, breaking the Sabbath, murder, rape. All of these were punishable by death. Participating in witchcraft, committing adultery, homosexual activity, cursing one's parents, all had the same penalty, death. This was the the laws that God had given to Israel. And we look at it today and we think, wow, that was harsh. But this was the way that God had set up the government of Israel under this theocracy. But sadly, we know that all too soon, even though God was the very literal head of the nation of Israel, all too soon Israel forgot God and soon started wandering after all of the idols, all of the gods of all the nations around. The history of Israel is a history of failing of backsliding, of suffering under the judgments of God. 
of repenting and returning back to God and God forgiving them time and time again. And yet, time and time again, they're falling back into their old ways. Until finally, the nation of Israel and Judah, the nations are divided. Israel is taken captive into Assyria, never to, never to return. Later, Judah is taken captive into Babylon. And that's, those of you who are here for our Sabbath school lesson, thank you, Lisa, that was an excellent study. Um, we see what happened there in the nation of Babylon. How, even though Judah, by and large, had forgotten and rejected God, yet there were a few a very few, but there were a few who remained true and loyal to God. Daniel and his three friends there. And you see those three worthies standing there tall on the plain of Dura while everyone is bowing down to the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had made. They're standing tall. They're doing what God had intended for Israel to do all along. Israel as a nation but he's working through the individuals. Even though the nation has fallen, has rejected him, God is working through these individuals to bring light and glory to his name in a heathen land. You know, despite the fact that the theocracy of Israel failed more often than it succeeded, God's original purpose, his plan to build a personal relationship with every individual, it was still in effect. The theocracy did not replace the need for the individual and personal relationship. It was meant to facilitate that relationship on a national scale. You see in Joshua 24, 15, this was under the perhaps the height of this theocracy. Joshua 24, 15, Joshua appeals. He says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He appeals to each one individually, serve the Lord. For despite all of this theocracy, all of the rules and guidelines and civil government that's set up to help you along the way, it has to be an individual decision, whether or not you will serve the Lord. And we see that there with the Hebrew worthies. They're on the plain of Dura, standing tall, being thrown in the fiery furnace. God spoke clearly to the nation of Babylon. Now at the end of the 70 years, remember Jeremiah had prophesied, 70 years Judah would be in captivity and then they would return and Jerusalem would be rebuilt and restored. So at the end of that 70-year time period, Daniel the prophet gets down on his knees and begins to pray. God, have you forgotten your people? Have you forgotten Judah? And God comes through the angel Gabriel and sends a special message to Daniel. He says, no, I have not forgotten. I have not forgotten my people. I have not forgotten your people. He gives Daniel this vision in Daniel chapter 8 of 2,300 days. And Daniel doesn't understand. Nobody understands what this vision means. But he comes back in Daniel chapter 9. And he, and he says 490 years. He says 77, 70 weeks, 490 years are cut off, are determined, are given to your people, to the holy city. We find that in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Flip over there with me. We don't have time to study this whole prophecy today. 
because uh, we're, we're going somewhere. We're taking kind of a flying, flying view of this, but Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. God shows to Daniel that 490 years are given to this theocracy of Israel. And during this last seven-year period, the last seven years, in the middle of that last seven years, the Messiah, it says, would be cut off. Not for himself, he would be cut off for the sins of his people, to make atonement for sin. But what happens after the 490 years? What would become of Israel at this time? What would become of God's theocracy? Well, the prophecy isn't specific. We have to go elsewhere in the Bible to find that. You know, I believe, I sincerely believe, that God's plan for Israel included far more than these 490 years that he had given after the time of Daniel. God's plan was far greater. In fact, God never wanted Israel to go into captivity to Babylon in the first place. God never intended for the Jewish leaders to reject their Messiah. If you read the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets... Zechariah, you see prophecies of a grand and glorious future for Israel. A, pro- a, a future in which the Messiah would come and Israel would become, through the power of the Messiah, a light to the entire world. You know, a lot of people have taken this to mean that the theocracy of Israel, the theocracy would somehow continue on into the future. Because after all, we read many prophecies in the Old Testament that apparently have never been fulfilled yet. And how else would they be fulfilled unless God restored that theocracy of Israel? But of course, that's not how it happened. We know when Jesus came, he was not accepted by the leaders of Israel. In fact, he was rejected and condemned to death, both by the Jewish leaders and by the Roman power. At Pentecost, many, many of Israel believed. But the leaders continued to persecute the church. Finally, at the close of the 490 years prophesied in Daniel, the leadership of Israel sealed their fate, the fate of the nation, in the stoning of Stephen. And you look and read there in the book of Acts, you see a shift in the dynamics of the early Christian church. Instead of focusing on and preaching the gospel, to Judah and to Jerusalem. Now the gospel goes to the Gentiles and you see the apostle Paul, who was Saul, standing there with holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. You see the apostle Paul going to the Gentile world, going across the world. You see Peter um, called to go and take the gospel to the centurion. You see the gospel going to the Gentiles. And from this time on, Gentiles as well as Jews are welcomed into the fold of God. In fact, Jesus' coming ushers in a new era of history. Jesus' followers were to become citizens of a new kingdom. Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven. Look there in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. 
Matthew 4 and verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus lays out the principles of this kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He, he goes on and on and on and on to tell the principles of this kingdom that is not of this world, but this kingdom that he calls the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus was, was on trial, he was asked if he is a king. We find in John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. He taught that his kingdom would not be a worldly kingdom, but an otherworldly kingdom. Hence his followers would not use temporal or earthly power to strengthen his cause. Paul reiterates this principle in Philippians 3 and verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, where is our citizenship? Is it on this earth? Or is it first and foremost in heaven? Yes, I'm a citizen of the United States of America, but first, before that, I'm a citizen of where I was reborn in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? So, rather than encouraging his followers to mount an insurrection, to resist the evil power of Rome, Jesus taught the opposite. Look at Matthew 5 and verse 39. He says, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And in verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. This was the the cruel and oppressive power of the Roman government, the soldiers would come along, they would see someone standing beside the road. Here, carry my pack. And according to the law, if a Roman soldier threw his pack on your back, you had to go a mile and carry that pack a mile. Jesus says, go with him too. Go with him two miles. Don't resist evil. Like the children of Judah during the Babylonian captivity, or like the citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom, I should say the citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom would be subject for a time to the rulers of this world. Paul writes in Romans 13 and verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Seriously, Paul? You're writing this about the Roman government? This is the the empire that's about to start burning Christians. Yet Paul says they're appointed by God. Be subject unto them. But to counterbalance this, we must remember, we must remember the apostles' words in Acts 5, 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. If the laws of the land conflict with the law of God, which do we follow? We follow the law of God first. You know, John the Revelator saw a vision of God's church symbolized by a glorious woman in Revelation chapter 12. This woman was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Nothing about this woman was connected to this earth or the powers that govern it. So it was to be with Christ's church. Never again would God establish another theocracy on earth. Until the end, 
of the thousand years, long after Jesus would come in power and glory to this earth. Long after. Then again, when the earth made new, he would again establish a kingdom, not based upon the kingdoms of this world, but a kingdom of righteousness. But until then, until then, he would not establish another theocracy. Now you may be wondering, what happened to this theocracy of Israel? What happened to it? Where did it go? Well, of course, you know that the Roman armies came in AD 70 and destroyed Jerusalem. But Paul and the early Christians did not see Israel as going away. They didn't see the Christian church as being a replacement for the ancient Israel. In fact, if you turn to Romans chapter 11, we don't have time to study all of Romans 11, but uh, if you turn to Romans chapter 11, we see there, Paul speaks about the branches that were cut off from the olive tree and wild olive branches, that is the Gentiles, that were grafted back in to this olive tree. So in other words, the Gentile Christians were grafted into the stock, as it were, of Israel. And though some of the leaders in Israel and Judah were cut off because of their rejection of Christ, all who would accept Christ would be grafted into not a literal Israel, but a spiritual Israel, which was a continuation, as it were, of this theocracy, not on earth, but of the kingdom of heaven, a spiritual Israel. In fact, we find that in Galatians 3, 28 and 29. Galatians chapter 3. 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. Who were Israel? Israel were Abraham's seed. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And all those promises that were made in the Old Testament of the glory of Israel now become the promises that will be fulfilled in the Christian church. And we find this in the book of Revelation, how many of these prophecies in Revelation are an allusion to or a reframing of what was prophesied in the Old Testament for the glory of Israel, but now is ultimately going to be fulfilled under Christ. You know, for several generations after Christ, his followers, the Christians, suffered a terrible, terrible persecution at the hands of the Romans. The Roman emperors, and, and Liesel talked about this in Sabbath school, the Roman emperors demanded that their subjects show their loyalty by burning just a little bit of incense. Worship the emperor. You can worship whoever else you want, but you have to worship the emperor. And many, many Christians died a horrible death at the hands of their persecutors because they refused to worship the emperor. But slowly things began to change. Christianity started to become popular. By the 4th century, Emperor Constantine himself became a Christian. Suddenly, Christians were no longer persecuted. What a wonderful thought. The church found itself with the unlikeliest of allies, the state that had so long been persecuting them. But this unlikely ally would soon become the church's deadliest foe. 
Well might the church have been to stop and consider the words of Jeremiah 17.5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm, whose heart departs from the Lord. And then rather than protecting the freedom of worship for all, the state went a step further and became the protector and the defender of the faith of Christ. Bishops and popes now had the mighty arm of civil power to enforce their edicts. And with what terrible results. Doctrines, yes, were compromised. Corruption in the church became rampant. Soon, the church itself looked very much like the pagan religions that had so lately been persecuting it. Those who dared to remain loyal to God were persecuted more dreadfully under the power of the church state than they had been under the power of pagan Rome. This new so-called Christian theocracy was aptly described by John in Revelation chapter 17. You know about this woman of Revelation 17. Unlike the pure and white woman who was from everything outside the world, the sun, the moon, and the stars, this woman of Revelation 17, this impure woman, is riding atop a worldly beast of civil power and authority. For over a thousand years, this church-state power would dominate the politics of Europe. This Prote- the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century demonstrated just how far this corrupt system of worship had gone astray from the word of God. It would demonstrate also to what lengths the rulers of the church would stoop to maintain their authority, killing not hundreds, not thousands, but millions of Christians who dared to follow the word of God in disobedience to their commands. So it was in this context in the later part of the 18th century, that our forefathers of this nation framed the Constitution of the United States. Many of them were believers in God, but they had seen firsthand the tyranny of governments that were controlled by state churches. Not just the Catholic Church, but the Protestant churches that had come out of them and had become just like them in principle. So the framers of our Constitution formed the foundation of a republic based on one principle, the principle of separating church and state. You know, I hear a lot of people today telling me the United States of America was formed as a Christian nation. Now, it's true, it was founded upon Christian principles. Many of the foundational laws of our country are found in the Judeo-Christian ethic. They're found there in those Old Testament laws of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But the cornerstone principle, the key, my friends, that I believe has made the United States of America great is this principle of freedom, this separation of church and state. It means that every citizen is free to worship as he or she chooses or not to worship at all without interference by the state. No, the USA is not a Christian nation. It's a nation of freedom, where Christians, Jews, Muslims, atheists, everyone can live together in harmony and worship according to the dictates of their own heart and their own conscience. And you know, my friends, 
Though I am a devout and staunch Christian, as I study the Bible, I can't help but believe that this is the best form of government that we can hope for, this side of the second coming. Because after all, Jesus' kingdom, he says, is not of this world. He never wanted to establish an earthly government. And the principles of his heavenly kingdom forbid us to use force to advance his cause. So a government that allows, not one that requires, but one that allows the free exercise of religion without interference is the best that we can hope for. Now, of course, our freedoms of religion, even despite our constitution, our freedoms of religion are constantly under attack. I hear so many cases of employers who won't accommodate Seventh-day Adventists or Jews or others from from keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. They don't want to accommodate. They don't want to bend. They don't want to understand. And these cases have gone to court. And in the past, um, court cases have been very, very friendly, very favorable to the freedom of religion. Today, the this pendulum is swinging and shifting, and more and more people are having difficulty getting Sabbath off to where they can keep the Sabbath holy and still maintain and keep their job and their career. There was an interesting case. I'm not trying to side one way or the other, but there's an interesting case recently that involved an Amish family who requested a religious exemption from the requirement to vaccination to put their kids in school. And, and it was denied. It was, this is in New York. It was denied. Again, I'm not going to try to comment one way or the other on the, on the issue, except to say that it seems that more and more religious freedom is being subjugated to many other interests of both the state and the private parties. And religious freedom is getting lower and lower and lower on the totem pole, so to speak. Now, of course, you've followed the, probably the saga of the cake baker who refused to bake a cake that would go against his conscience to celebrate the, the wedding of this, of this gay couple. We followed that saga. You know, often our present-day discussion of religious liberty is framed in terms of how the state has become increasingly hostile towards religion. And that is true. And it saddens me to see that our state it seems to be anti-religion because that's not what the framers of our Constitution intended. It may surprise you, my next statement, but I've seen some recent developments in the political world on the other side of the spectrum that are just as troubling. About three months ago, the U.S. Attorney General, William Barr, gave a speech at the University of Notre Dame And Barr spoke on religious freedom. That was his topic there at the university. He spoke about the campaign by militant secularists to destroy the moral order of society. And he couched his arguments in terms of this need to have more religious freedom. But Barr's argument from beginning to end, his whole argument was about the need to get back to God. And that we need to have God and religion, and particularly Christianity, in every level of our government. As a moral rudder guiding the creation and interpretation of laws, he spoke at length 
about the attack on Christian values in public education, the need to allow state funding for private schools through vouchers and tax incentives. And all this would be good and well coming, perhaps, from a Christian pastor. But this is coming from one of the highest officials of state, one who has pledged to uphold the principles of of our Constitution, which includes this separation of church and state. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't have a right to speak to say what he believes. Everyone, even public officials, have a right to believe. I don't have a problem with that. But as Barr goes on and shapes and, and describes how his religion shapes his view of public policy and how this is the way our country ought to be, where religionists control and shape the policy of the nation, it becomes very, very troubling. A Washington Post a writer, Catherine Rampell, described Barr's speech this way, a tacit endorsement of theocracy in this country, the United States of America. It's not just the politicians, but I hear this same sentiment among Christians that I speak with them on all sides. This country needs to get back to God. Why can't we have teachers leading out prayer in public schools? Why can't we have Bible class in our public schools? Why shouldn't we have tax money help improve our church school playgrounds, pay our tuition, help our church community programs? Wouldn't it be a good thing for the government to protect our Christian values from being undermined by a secular society? Let's get our church people in the government. Why not let churches be part of the campaign platform for our elected officials? After all, think how much good could be done if the the politicians were a little bit beholden to the churches. Someone's got to keep them in line, right? How much could we accomplish if churches could have a little more influence on our public policy? Or would it? Because by the same token, the churches then become beholden to those same politicians. And friends, we're seeing this happen right now in this country today. The wall that separates church and state is being broken down, and the dam is about to be breached and a flood is soon to follow. Now, I I realize these are deep and complicated discussions. I'm not here trying to make a political statement. I'm just here trying to raise your awareness of some of these issues. I'm not saying I have all the answers. I don't. But I do know one thing. That for us as a church, for us as Christians, there is a help that we don't need or want. We don't need to return to the experiment of the Middle Ages. We don't need to return to this false theocracy. We don't want to see again what happens when church and state get in bed together. The last verses of Revelation chapter 13 describe a system of power in the last days that will ally itself against the worshipers of God and enforce a system of worship the Bible calls the mark of the beast. These days are coming, my friends. I don't pretend to be a prophet. I don't pretend to know exactly how or when or what political parties or what side's going to do it. I'm I'm not here saying that. But I fear these days are coming sooner than we may think. And what do we do, friends? What can we do? I'm not here trying to jump into politics. But if I read the Bible correctly, one day soon, This nation is going to repudiate 
everything it stands for in the area of religious liberty. And we're going to go back to the way it was in the Middle Ages, when laws will try to compel the conscience. And those who are truly following God will have to decide, will I follow God? Or will I follow man? When our life is on the line. But my friends, while we have time, while we have a voice, let us use this voice to speak out in favor of religious freedom. We don't have forever, but let's do all in our power to protect the rights that we have while we still have time so that the gospel of the kingdom, not the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of heaven, the gospel of the kingdom can be preached in all the world before the end comes. My friends, let me put it just very simply. Jesus never authorized another theocracy. Short of his second coming, he taught his followers to be subject to authority, but always first to obey God rather than man. And while he was fearless in calling out sin, he didn't try to curry favor with Rome or with the Jewish leaders. Jesus does not demand or force people to follow him. He simply calls. I love his words in Revelation 22 and verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. He has given us this message to proclaim to a world in need. And the only help we need, it comes from him through the power of his Holy Spirit, filling and dwelling each of our lives. In the words of Hebrews 13, 6, So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, you are the help, our help in time of need. And yes, Lord, we need the help that comes from you. Help us to discern the times that we are living in. Help us to be aware. And Lord, help us to reach this world in need before it is too late. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.